Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to our podcast series labeled Faculty and Research. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nancy Sherman, a university professor in the philosophy department at Georgetown. Since 1995, Nancy has consulted for the U.S. Armed Forces on issues of ethics, moral injury, resilience, and post-traumatic stress, lecturing here and abroad. She's written or contributed to seven different books, including After War, colon, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers, published in 2015. She's also written over 60 articles on the subjects of ethics, military ethics, the history of moral philosophy, ancient ethics, the emotions, moral psychology, and psychoanalysis. She's also been a frequent contributor in the media, and her articles, opinion pieces, reviews, and mention of her work have appeared widely in the press. Nancy, we are delighted to have you here joining us on this little podcast series. And I wonder if if we could begin just with some reflections on your own intellectual journey. It began, I believe, thinking about the question, what makes for a human being? And when I got to Bryn Mawr College, I discovered that the standard offerings were not giving me the answer. Anthropology, I thought, might be it, but that was about bones and fossils. Psychology might be it, but that was about my beloved rat, Absalom, and (laughs) tickling his pleasure centers. English was about style and form. Political science was, as you know, uh, largely about, in my days, stats and demographics. And so I ended up in philosophy. So I would say it was an eliminative choice. That said, I really hunkered down to find of great interest texts. I loved reading texts. And before long, I found ancient texts to be the most interesting, in particular, a kind of long affair with Aristotle. And I've remained um, faithful to him, you might say, for a good uh, almost half century. That said, sometime in the mid-90s, after finishing a book on Aristotle and Kant, I got a call from the United States Naval Academy uh, to consult regarding a cheating scandal. And that was the right time for thinking about something else, and it was a good time to apply some of what I had learned to a very different field. So that was an external call on your expertise, it it sounds like, but I get the sense it was pivotal for you that uh, after that moment something changed your own research trajectory. It was pivotal. I thought when I was at the Naval Academy that I had something to contribute to the public and that it was important to speak in a voice that could be accessible to, to others and not just the readers uh, and, uh, and scholars who were following my work. That was very gratifying and also I had teaching assistants that were hungry and they weren't graduate students. They were in many cases admirals with four stripes on their shoulders, um, colonels, um, folks that had been even in prisons in, uh, in Hanoi. And so I found philosophy actually spoke to them. It helped to, them to conceptualize issues they dealt with but didn't have a framework, like collateral damage, 
uh, in terms of notions of double effect or foreseen but unintended consequences. Chains of command and mitigated responsibility but institutional responsibility, notions of collective responsibility. So all of a sudden things that were often just cast in a scholarly way actually had uptake in a way that was very formative. I have to say my father, who was a World War II medic, all of a sudden began to understand what philosophy was when I brought home folks that had uniforms on that were not enlisted and not privates, but they were the brass. And he found this very entertaining, but also kind of validating that this was a world that he and his daughter could share a bit. So tell us this journey that you took reconsidering your rejection of psychology as an undergraduate, and uh, what stimulated that? Well, in the early 70s uh, and late 60s, and where I was at Bryn Mawr, heavily influenced by studies at University of Pennsylvania, behaviorism was the uh, de rigueur kind of psychology you did. And I actually liked it a lot, but philosophy had the breadth that allowed you to study uh, issues of human flourishing, issues of thriving, uh, with some moral psychology added. And by moral psychology, I mean a philosophical study of emotions. It wasn't going to be empirical, but it could look at the conceptual terrain and try to make sense of some of the ideas about uh, the role of emotions in a good life, um, whether you take responsibility for them, you're held accountable for them. And these were issues that then started to have real uptake in the military. There were issues of rage, there were issues of, uh, of not showing any emotion, being absolutely stoic. There were issues of the case of Stockdale, who was a, a kind of professed stoic of, of memorizing Epictetus in order to get through seven and a half years of being a POW, along with John McCain, who was uh, under his command. So emotions and what it was to thrive in good times, but also in deprivation, started to have some uh, real interest and an audience that having largely been engineers, the Naval Academy turns out a lot of submariners, um, folks who do engineering, and they found Kant fascinating, they found Aristotle fascinating, and they found Stoicism particularly their cup of tea. So I know at a certain point in your life you decided you wanted to go much more deeply into psychology and psychoanalysis, and tell us about that journey and how, how you came to that conclusion. You really needed to stop at a certain point and and go deep into a completely different field. Yeah, I did. I was always fascinated with Freud, and I wanted to study him as, as, uh, as a writer of texts. He's, he was a good writer, and so I wanted to do that. And the only way I could figure out how to do that was to sign up for the Washington Institute of Psychoanalysis, which I did. And it was many years, I have to say, five or six years of Saturdays. That said, I never did full up clinical work because frankly, I couldn't afford to open a practice, have children teach and show up for class on time. But I could be in uh, classes with others who were clinical. And clinical psycho psychology, at least when I was going through university as an undergraduate, wasn't something taught at the undergraduate level. 
probably the most interesting moment of that career in uh, psychoanalytic research training was observing a baby close up that wasn't my own or one of my two. And I visited a child from birth to a year and took observation notes. And I saw things that are now well discussed in the literature, synchronies, miming, interpersonal connectivity that develops very, very early. Even things like emotional agency, uh, a child regulating her affect at a very, very early age, or soliciting response from a parent. I found this absolutely fascinating and it started to overlap with my interests in the emotions, which I had been studying via Aristotle and some of other texts. So I found a kind of way of thinking about emotions that was quite, in a, in a way, practical, real. It opened up my eyes to my own children as well, as a, and, and being a parent at that point of, of high school children, college children. And it's come back in the classroom. Just uh, yesterday, two days ago, we were talking about emotions as a way to transition from modern philosophy and actually going back to Aristotle and we were reading one of my old articles, Taking Responsibility for Emotions, and Malcolm Gladwell, Faces and What You Can Control and Not Control on Your Face. And the ones that chose to write on emotions were amazed that you could be agents of your emotional life to some degree. Maybe not, as I say, stop an emotion on a dime, but you could probably coax along motions that you're not sure about or would like to display, or you could be strategic about what you show on your face, even if you don't feel it. I think they just don't think about emotions much at all. It's still somewhere in the underbelly of their lives. And they come in with, some of them come in with real trauma. So discussion of emotions in a classroom where you're not professing to do therapy and getting students to write about it in a kind of academic way where they're interacting with uh, research material, I think is really therapeutic and, mm -hmm. and liberating in a certain way for them. So thinking of this recent book, After War, how did that psychoanalytic training help you frame either the questions in the book or, or how, you, how you pursued the topic? Well, I wanted a book that would speak from the point of view of the veterans and the point of view of service members. So that book came out in 2015 and I began writing it around 09, I guess. Uh, we were having students return to the university who were veterans. Some found my course because of the title, it had something to do with war, or who I was and what I wrote about. And topics would come up in class where, despite a vow of silence that some of these students would take, I'll be the gray beard and I won't say anything, they started to talk, or a spouse of a Marine started to talk or the like. And I found that it was very fascinating for me, but also helpful for them to tell their story and to have someone be able to hear their story. So I, uh, with their permission, talked to them at length. And I, I think these were interesting conversations. Again, some of it was because people that aren't trained philosophers don't always conceptualize in a way that's as 
helpful or clear. I mean, not that all philosophy takes away the uh, demystifies, but some does uh, lift some of the ambiguity. And the idea of sharpening a notion of taking responsibility, but not objectively speaking, being morally responsible for what happened, because it's it was non-negligent accident, mm. or it was legally permissible collateral damage. And even probably under command and the particular rules of engagement, morally permissible. But that doesn't mean that they won't go on feeling the scar of that action as somehow unnatural or immoral or that they're morally culpable in some way. So just being able to clarify some of that and also differentiate those feelings from traditional post-traumatic stress disorder, which is fear-based. It's about survival and typically that's its characteristic edge. And there's where behaviorism came in, by the way. That idea of having a fear response was very, very important when the diagnosis of PTSD came out in 1980 and very influenced by behaviorism, an external trigger that overstimulates your response and you can't easily turn off. But many of the worries, anxieties, and anguish of war are about the killing, permissible and impermissible, just and unjust wars, just and unjust conduct in war. This seems like a great example of a case where your teaching life as an instructor actually informed your scholarly life in a in a very real way. And do you think of it that way? And and how do you how do you navigate the two sides of your life of instructing young minds, but also producing scholarship that uh, is disseminated for the benefit of the larger world? The books on war, and especially untold war and after war were very much stimulated by conversations with students, many of whom returning veterans or active service members. I've had PhD students who have been colonels, lieutenant colonels, uh, and the like. And so they were in the classroom and they were worried about these things and I was worried about them at the same time. And so I thought in many ways that if we could make progress together on this, uh, professors, students, but also greater public, then we'll be better off for it. So the drive came both from where I had planted some seeds, but also we've been at war for 17, 18 years. These were uh, wars. We live in Washington. Uh, these people were going in and out of the Pentagon, um, some with great responsibility and a lot of ambiguity in their lives. So the in general, I think war ethics has flourished, I hate to say it, these past 20 years or so, because of the real concrete examples before us. And also, there's been a very lively interest, again, in a classroom setting that I get involved with here at Georgetown, but elsewhere. Those cadets, colonels, generals, admirals, they actively think about these problems. They are not just battlefield folk. They are actively theoretically thinking about it. And in a way that wasn't the case, I'd say 50 years ago, they welcome academic exchange. So I do think my research interests have been shaped both by who we have as students, what the issues of the day are, and some expertise I developed over the years. 
give us a sense of how you think about your scholarly life. Are, are you right now working on multiple questions in parallel, or are you are you sort of totally focused on the the issue of the day that you're passionately pursuing an answer to a particular question, and then you go on to the next question? How how do you think about your scholarly life? I'm a book writer, so I really like thinking about a large question and a way in which I can develop it over time. So at the moment I'm thinking about Stoicism again and in particular a, a contemporary issue. Why is Stoicism so popular? Why are tech gurus attracted to it as a new Zen? Why is the military attracted to it or continuing to be attracted to it. How does that fit in with, in the case of the military, their recognition of moral injury, uh, where there's a lot of disturbance, anguish, and, and uh, disquiet, and those things or states don't seem particularly stoic, not a feature of stoic calm. And then I get very interested in particular writers. So I'm right now on a a Seneca kick. And so I'll read a lot of Seneca and read some of his tragedies. And I am not reading it as a translator would or as a, a Roman historian would or even a philologist. I'm really thinking about it in terms of issues I've always thought about. If you had to tell the young new scholar Nancy Sherman what she should do to become the current Nancy Sherman. What, what stands out in your mind? Were, were there surprises in your life that took you down paths that were just unimaginable? Or were there dead ends that, you know, in retrospect uh, didn't pay off? How, how do you think about that? I was blessed first with wonderful mentors. So that, I think, is a sine qua non. You, if someone really takes an interest you, in you and you're in an environment in which that can be cultivated as a scholarly friendship, then that uh, makes all the difference. In my case, it was Martha Nussbaum and John Rawls. They were really, really supportive throughout. Were there dead ends? You know, I can't really think of dead ends where I didn't end up making lemonade out of something. I think I was lucky in that I got asked to do public service mid-career or some point thereafter. And I have to say, I think Georgetown was generous, very generous. They allowed me to take that chance and to go to the Naval Academy and take a secondment and give back in some ways. And I think that was very validating. There, I can imagine there would be institutions in which helping the ethics program of a military academy would not be looked upon well. So I, I do give credit to Georgetown, to Jack DeJoy at the time for in encouraging that. Nancy Sherman, this has been fun. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us and thank you for your reflections on, on your own career. Thank you so much, Bob. It was uh, wonderful fun to uh, think back as to how it happened. <laughs>